Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Affleck. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. Thanks for tuning in. As the school year comes to a close, I've had a few proud parent moments lately. They've centered mainly around a project that my 10-year-old Avery has been working on. He's in the fourth grade, and at his school, this is the year they've been tasked with their first big research project. It can be on absolutely any topic they want. And I'll ask you to pause for a moment and consider the various things that a 10-year-old might choose to study. Some of the topics I've heard about have included being a DJ. My daughter's first grade class was an audience for that particular presentation, which included a much-discussed audiovisual demonstration with black lights. Another topic was the blue marlin. Yes, the fish. And one little girl studied cheese. Not Wisconsin cheese, which here in the Milwaukee area is definitely a thing, but just cheese. What did catch me off guard was Avery chose to research Harry Houdini. Avery loves magic. I'm not entirely sure where this came from, but he often has a deck of cards in his pocket or a coin to use for a trick. So it wasn't really that surprising when he revealed this topic. What did surprise me was when he came home one day recently, running into the house from the bus excitedly to relay something they had covered at school that day. Bing, bang, bongo. If you've read Storytelling with Data or heard me speak on this topic, it's possible that you've read or heard me say this strange combination of syllables before. I learned the concept in my eighth grade English class in the context of learning to write essays. The idea is that you start with your hypothesis, bing. Then you move into the body of your essay, bang. And finally, your conclusion, bongo. When I teach about telling stories with data, I sometimes reference this and its utility. Bing, you set up for your audience what you're going to tell them. Bang, you go through the details. And then bongo, you recap for them what you've just covered, sending them off with a bias towards action. This does a few positive things. It sets expectations with your audience, leverages the power of repetition so they're more likely to be able to remember and even repeat important points. In any case, I had clearly shared this concept at some point with my oldest child because he was super excited that he learned the same thing in the fourth grade. And he also learned it in the context of writing essays because an essay is one of the outputs of his research project. But it's not the only one. As part of the project, students are also required to come up with their own thing. I use the word thing here because the remit really is very broad. Create something else that demonstrates what you've learned. Might be a poster or a web page. Yes, by the way, that thing that I did at a full 20-something years of age after achieving a university degree is now being done by fourth graders. Or whatever the young mind might conceive. Avery has made a board game. It's called Help Houdini. When you begin, Harry Houdini is bound by chains. You roll the dice, move your piece, and land on various spots to draw cards where you can undertake feats that will remove chain links from Houdini. 
The goal is to fully free him before you reach the end of the path. I've played it. It's challenging. As my other son Dorian says, the cards are stacked against the audience. So while an essay might be the expected output of a research project at school and probably works well enough most of the time, the game where you get to help Harry Houdini get unchained is certainly more creative, engaging, memorable. It gives Avery credibility on his area of research in a really interesting way. It's also perfect for his topic and his audience. He made a game about a magician for a class of fourth grade kids. It's pretty clever. It turns out the same might just be true when communicating with data. Let me pose the topic of today's episode as a question. When might your data communication be served by something other than a graph or slide? In other words, when might storytelling without data better suit your situation? Before we get to data communications specifically, let's consider business communications in general and a common form that takes, the slide deck. Or rather, not the slide deck. When might a slide or series of slides be expected or be the first thing you think of when you have something to communicate when you might actually be better off without them? When might you give a presentation with no slides? Does that make you uncomfortable just thinking about it? Slides often become a crutch, the thing we rely on to remember what we wanted to say or that take the focus off us as we're presenting. But that may not always be desired. Let's talk about a couple specific instances in which slides might not be what you need. If words alone will get your point across, you may not need slides. There's some exercises that we commonly discuss or have participants do in our workshops that can be helpful for assessing this, the three-minute story and the big idea. Three-minute story is just what it sounds like. You have three minutes to tell your audience what they need to know. This time constraint makes you get rid of the less critical details and really focus on the most salient pieces of information. Condensing things even further, the big idea is a single sentence that gets your main message across. So you can go through and develop these concepts. Right? What if you only had three minutes to tell your audience what they need to know? Or what if you only had a single sentence? When we teach these concepts, they're not meant to be the only thing that gets communicated. They're actually meant to be tools for the person who is creating the materials to use. So they have a really clear understanding of the goal or the main message, which will help them better form content that's going to support support that or ultimately uh, achieve that thing. But in a case where you find that that single sentence, for example, will suffice, maybe you don't need to create more than that. We're going to talk about this idea of putting things into words when it comes to assessing whether or not to use graphs as well soon. Uh, but more generally, I would say when you find yourself turning straight to slides, consider when you might instead have a conversation, send an email, or tell a story. Speaking of which, if you want the focus entirely on you, you probably don't need slides. This can be a tactic that you use at specific points during a presentation where you take down your slides or show a blank screen, or in some instances, you might skip the slide deck altogether. 
As one example from my work, and I'll actually go through a specific example of this a little bit later. When I'm telling a personal story in the context of a presentation where I am using slides, which I'll often do for illustration, I'll typically show a blank slide or a black screen or stop sharing in a virtual scenario. Then I know that people's full attention is on me. If I think back over time, there are several instances where I've given presentations without any slides at all as well. In one case, I was faced with a pretty significant time constraint. I was asked to talk about my work in about 10 minutes. This was a less formal networking setting where I was the featured person who was setting a bit of context about me as the prelude for a longer Q&A session that I would lead. Now, I could have jumped in with slides, maybe illustrated some of our key lessons, progressing through a graph makeover to show decluttering, focusing attention, for example. This would have given people some visual context. And I think earlier in my career, this is absolutely what I would have done. So some of what I am describing here, when it comes to approaching something quite differently than you might typically or naturally do, is likely easier when you have both credibility and confidence to do something that's considered outside the norm or that's different in some way than what's expected. In this instance, I decided to skip the slides and instead shared three truths that everyone in the audience, this was a group of founders of various early stage startups, could use the next time they communicated in a critical setting. Reflecting on this now, just as Avery's board game for fourth graders honored not only his interests, but also that of his audience, this is what I did in the founder scenario as well. Also, with the focus entirely on me, it means I can do things with my body and my voice to demand attention. I'm going to share three things, I can hold up three fingers, that you should do the next time you communicate. One, hold up one finger. Communicate for your audience, not for yourself, and so on. On another occasion, I needed to go through fine details with my stakeholders. In this case, it was a small group, and I needed to tee up some really specific conversations. So rather than present slides, I used a handout. We sat side by side uh, at a table and talked through it together. It's interesting, in a similar way to how attention on me gives me different ways to emphasize with my voice and hands, having the focus on paper, in this case the handout that I'd brought along with me, brings some different flexibility and options for directing attention to. I can emphasize something as I'm talking through it by taking a pen and physically underlining words that are written on the page or writing a word or circling an important number, for example. These are a couple of situations where I opted to skip the slides. Another scenario where you might not turn to slides or graphs is when things aren't finished or final. There can be utility in sharing unpolished work. This can be particularly useful when you need to get directional feedback rather than design feedback. A polished-looking graph or slide begs for the design to be critiqued. You might need that, but that's at a very particular point in the process. Before that point, when you need directional feedback or to get people aligned on an idea or approach, 
you can opt to share low-tech output or work in progress. This could take the form of a sticky note storyboard that outlines your intended plan of attack or a rough sketch of a graph or a slide. I'm sure there are other instances, too, where low fidelity makes sense. I'll leave you to consider when providing something rough might be better than a final-looking product. We've spent some time on slides, and when you might not use these, let's shift our conversation more specifically to graphs. When should we maybe not use a graph to communicate? I'll focus on two separate issues here. First, when the graph just outright doesn't work for some reason. And secondly, when you might simply be better off using something other than a graph. Let's start with that first bucket. The graph doesn't work or is likely to mislead. This can happen when numbers are small or your data is super noisy, lots of ups and downs. You need to be careful in those instances about aggregating it to an average, for example, or drawing directive conclusions. Be aware that when you put data into a graph, it feels robust. It feels like fact, like truth. There's power in this, but also risk if there are issues with the underlying data. Another one of those issues might be if the data is incomplete or many assumptions go into it. And here it depends. How big of an issue is it and whether that missing data or wrong assumption is likely to directionally change how you would use it or what you would say with it. When it comes to incomplete data, let's say you're wanting to draw conclusions and the response rate on your survey is 30%, for example. It's very different than if it's 90%. But it's not as simple as deciding that 30% is too little and 90% is sufficient. If you've surveyed your 100,000-person employee base and received a 30% response rate where the demographics appear to be representative, that might be totally fine data to work with. In another instance, you might have a 90% response rate, but be missing a small and important segment. In that same employee survey example, perhaps no one on the executive team responded. This is a specific example. The more general point is it depends. A lot of missing data won't always cripple things, and most of the data won't always be enough. Always be thoughtful and discerning in how you work with data. When you have missing data and can quantify it or articulate the issues that not having it poses, you can sometimes use that to make the case for collecting new data or better data collection processes by outlining the questions we could answer if we started collecting a certain type of data, for instance. I was once working with a client, for example, who used this approach to redesign how they collected product feedback so that they'd be able to make more actionable insights, making sure they had the right kind of data to ultimately be able to do that. Another instance when you might not want to use a graph, perhaps the data is fine, but the visual you want to create is difficult, complicated, you don't know how to do it in your tool, or you simply don't have the time. I mentioned sketching before in the context of low tech for getting directional feedback. This can be a good place to do that also when, I guess, basically you're giving the directional feedback to yourself. Sketch the thing you want to create, then step back and assess whether it's possible or a good option given your constraints. 
One more example of when you might not want to use a graph is if someone else made it, it doesn't work, and you don't have time to fix it. I'll call on a client example that we've genericized and sometimes use in our workshops. It's a bubble graph. Actually, two bubble graphs. One is positioned above the other where the axes on each are the same. And there's just a plethora of issues. It's hard to read. Even though everything is directly titled and labeled, what's being plotted is confusing. The scale of circles is different across the two graphs, which actually takes quite a bit of studying things to realize and then makes a lot of the visual comparisons that it seems like you should be able to make with it totally invalid, problematic. (laughs) It's basically a mess. In a workshop setting, people spend so much time trying to figure out how to read the graph that they never even get to what information someone might learn from it. Uh, And actually, I recall this being true in the discussion of the original graph with the client group who had made it as well. The graph in this instance is doing much more harm than good. Related to this, there is a common piece of advice that I give for assessing and improving graphs, and that is to put it into words. Articulate the potential observations or takeaways that can be formed using the graph, then figure out exactly what you want to say with it. Actually put that into a sentence. In some cases, you'll be better off using those words than trying to communicate with the graph. This was definitely the case for that bubble graph I described. Or you can use the words that you formulate to improve and refine the graph so that it does what is intended. Putting things into words in this manner can sometimes highlight another bucket of reasons not to use a graph to communicate when humanizing the data will serve your audience or your message better. Graphs, aggregations of data, percentages, these are all useful things that we can do to make data easier to interpret and understand. But they can also, and I'm not entirely sure how to say this succinctly, but they can take the humanity or the people out of the data. I'll draw on an example from another exercise we've used before in our workshops. This one is taken from my second book, Let's Practice, and it's data about a medical device, and it compares patient-reported pain in terms of worse, the same, or better when the device is turned on compared to when it's turned off. In the exercise, we give people a small table of data that aggregates this. They spend a couple minutes listing various ways that you could visualize the data, and there are many. And then they spend a few more minutes sketching out the graphs, the approaches that they think will work best. This, in turn, facilitates a discussion about the pros and cons of the various graphs for showing this particular data. The conversation that doesn't typically happen as part of this is whether a graph is the right approach in the first place. In many instances, it could be. But if I'm the medical device company communicating to physicians or the public and I can turn my point into words that describe humans, seven out of 10 people reported lower pain with our device. That might be more compelling than a graph ever could be. Another instance on the topic of humanizing data is the case of qualitative data. 
if data is your comfort area, the first thing you might try to do is quantify your qualitative data so that you can stick it into a graph. Actually, related to this, I remember one of my very first projects when I started working at Google. It was to read through verbatim comments from the employee survey. And I did just that. I categorized them, aggregated them, and graphed them, which can be a great way to understand trends and primary takeaways. But it also can be very useful instead of or in addition to that to use those quotes or some of those quotes directly. This eliminates the interface of the graph, letting the words that someone, a person, shared be read and interpreted directly. Now, of course, you have to be careful about doing this smartly, not overgeneralizing and so forth, but there will be times where this will be totally appropriate and immensely powerful. Another potentially powerful way to communicate visually that is not a graph is with images. There are a number of ways in which or reasons you might choose to use an image to communicate. Let's talk through a few of these. You might opt for a photograph or an illustration when seeing the thing will help you explain or your audience understand. For example, imagine you work at a startup and are putting together a pitch deck to help secure funding. You could include a sketched or computer-generated prototype of your flagship product for your venture capitalist audience, assisting your explanation and ensuring their understanding. Another reason to potentially use an image is to aid in memorability. An image used well improves your audience's ability to recall a concept or point. This is due to something called the picture superiority effect. People tend to remember pictures better than words. I'll just mention that graphs can create this effect as well. This is thought to be due to the double encoding that happens with images in both visual and verbal memory versus the single encoding in verbal memory with words. I'll mention that my latest book, Storytelling with You, includes an entire chapter on using images in presentations. And that's chapter eight. And I'd like to read you a short segment. Images can set the tone. Carrying on with the topic of color, you may recall in chapter five that we discussed how hue evokes feelings and can help you set the tone for communication in the context of presentation design. Pictures do this as well and have the potential to do so to a much greater degree. I once began a workshop with the story of my daughter's birth. While this might seem like both a highly personal and unexpected experience to share in a business setting, I had concrete reasons for doing so. I was speaking to a group of physicians. Specifically, they were brain surgeons who spoke on behalf of a medical device company. My assignment was to convince them to approach things differently than they had done in the past. How's that for a potentially intimidating audience and scenario? The setting was a hotel ballroom. I was in the front of the room presenting to about 50 surgeons. In my story, I described being hooked up to an electrocardiogram, watching the printed results unspool from a reel of paper beside me. I saw a peak, then a valley, and a peak, then a valley, the data going up, then going down. And I was thinking to myself, that's an interesting graph. Doctor walked in, looked at the same piece of paper, and proclaimed, this is what active labor looks like. Throughout this narrative, I had a blank slide at my back to focus the surgeon's attention on me. Then at the end, I put up two pictures of my beautiful daughter, Eloise, one in the neonatal intensive care unit and another roughly a year later. 
This before and after that demonstrated the marvels of modern medicine, something my physician attendees could certainly appreciate, was a dramatic way to hint at the transformation I planned for attendees that day. I was going to ask them to be vulnerable and look at things in a new way. By doing that myself at the start of the presentation, I got the undivided attention of every person in the room and began to build their trust. The story and the pictures helped them relate to me, establishing a rapport that set the foundation for the day. This feels like a good point at which to bring things to a close today. The next time you have something important to communicate, pause. You know the path you're likely to follow. Turn to your presentation software, start creating slides, open your graphing application, start making a graph. But what if you did something different? Is that a reasonable option in the given scenario? When might storytelling without data be a preferable approach? Before I wrap a couple quick updates, we have a brand new workshop debuting in a matter of days from now and still a few spots open. On June 6th, that's 2023, join us for a virtual Storytelling With You half-day workshop. The focus is on the important role that you play when communicating. Bring a project of your choice and we'll guide you through the process to craft your message, compile the pieces, form a story, start to create content, and practice in ways that will improve your confidence to present powerfully. Details and registration for this and our classic Storytelling with Data half-day workshop can be found at storytellingwithdata.com slash workshops. Use the code PODCAST10 at checkout for 10% off registration price. That's PODCAST10. By the way, if that Storytelling with You workshop sounds like something your team or organization could use, we're now offering it for corporate clients too. Visit storytellingwithdata.com slash custom dash workshops for information on this and our other offerings. Check out our latest book, Storytelling with You, Plan, Create, and Deliver a Stellar Presentation. Visit storytellingwithyou.com to download sample content or order your copy today. If you've already read and enjoyed it, please share your review on Amazon. On the topic of books, if you teach from or would like to teach from Storytelling with Data Books, we have a fantastic and growing set of resources for university instructors. Go to storytellingwithdata.com university to learn more and join upcoming instructor-focused events. If you'd like to learn via video or would appreciate data visualization and presentation resources to share with colleagues, check out the Storytelling with Data YouTube channel. That's at storytellingwithdata.com YouTube. Subscribe for a no-cost way to support us and be notified of new episodes. Speaking of subscribing, if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share with a friend. Thanks very much for tuning in.